Hello, Dennis. Hello, Liturgy Guy participant, Jesse. And hello to Samantha Dreyer, who is a recent Patreon supporter. So if you want to support us, go to patreon.com slash liturgy. And Dennis, where does that money go to? It does not go into the idiot fund. It goes into the support, the actual hard costs of running Liturgy Guys. And believe it or not, it costs money to host this online and salaries and stuff like that and you get some sweet sweet benefits if you're a patreon supporter so thank you very much it really does help us out and this week we're diving back into sacrosanta concilium yes we got through a little bit of the beginning last time and now we are continuing cruising through finding the great gems in every word of every paragraph absolutely so without further ado episode eight of season three of the The liturgy Liturgy Guys. guys enjoy going to talk to you today about the mass the liturgy is what enculturates the gospel for us what are you some kind of altar boy and, and it enculturates it into our day-to-day life our, our day-to-day existence it's pretty dang exciting huh? we're called not to some crapshoot called life but to an adventure in fidelity that beckons us to cast out to the deep the liturgical institute is proud to present the liturgy guys All right. So last time we got we, through one through four. We got through one through four. That's that's all the introductory stuff, inspirational, kind of broad and happy and inspiring, right? So we're going to do a whole sequence of these things on Sacrosanic Achillean because it's important. This is the document. Everybody says Vatican II said X, Y, or Z, and it rarely did when they say Would that. Would you wager your 401k on it? I have wagered my 401k on many things people say are in Vatican II. And how many have you lost? None. All right. So, like noble simplicity for art and architecture. That's what. That's when I first started saying that. People say, "Oh, well, Vatican II says art and architecture should have noble simplicity." It's, it doesn't. Wrong. Wrong. All right, number five. Number five. <laughs> Numbers one through four were the introduction, and number five starts this section, chapter one: general principles for the restoration and promotion of the sacred liturgy. All right, say something about that title. Well, general principles would be in the world of ontology, I would think. So even before they give specific things, here are the general principles. What's the nature of the liturgy? How should it be understood? And when changes are made, what are the theological ideas behind that? And it says restoration, which is interesting, right? It doesn't say renovation or rewriting. It's the restoration of the sacred liturgy, which is very much a liturgical movement concept, that there was a kind of purity of liturgical action. Usually they thought it was from the early church. If you were to use that word now, I think it would mean something different. Right. If you're going to restore a Victorian house, people think you're going to scrape off all the junk from the 70s and restore it to its original condition. Mm -hmm. I think that is a bit how they imagined. They were bringing out the pristine purity of the liturgy. Yeah. So to what, uh, where would you peg it? Where do people place those pristine centuries? Well, usually they would think the 4th, 5th, 6th, 7th, 8th centuries. Those early days before the Funny accretions happened before the, I mean, people were closer to the apostles. They were trying to make liturgy great again? Yes, mala. (laughs) People were walking around with mala hats on. No, mula. Mulga. Mulga, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, so in fact, they'll say this somewhere in here. I guess we'll get to it. They wanted to restore the liturgy back to the pristine condition of the fathers. Right. Which is what, generally second to seventh? The patristic era. Yeah. So, but what do you make of that? Well, is that good, bad, or depends? I mean, if we said we want to restore liturgy, the pristine condition of the 1970s, we'd be like, what are you kidding? Come on. That was the bottom. We have to bring it back to some 
other essential 50s. era. The 50s, but then the people in the 50s were not happy. So everybody's always unhappy with liturgical change. And uh, so there's no golden age. But nonetheless, that idea was actually mentioned in Trent too, that the early church, closer to the apostles, closer to the time of Christ, they had the Makes purity sense. of the interpretation before they had these funny things. You know, when you read liturgical history, you find out that the Pope does something in Rome because it's necessary for Rome. So he's got a lot of opportunities and a lot of responsibilities because the Pope used to visit these three important churches in Rome and go celebrate mass with them. Well, then in France, they're like, oh, let's do the things the way the Pope does. So suddenly they have three masses in France, even though they don't have the three churches that Mm -hmm. the Pope would visit. And then somebody else inspires that and then things get added and different kinds of accretions that start for a reason. And sometimes they're good and the additions are good developments. So I used Sorry, can you define what you mean when you say there are different accretions? An accretion just means something that's been added for okay. whatever reason. Sometimes it's a good reason. I think the Agnus Dei was added in the ninth century, pretty much Kyrie was Gregory the Great. Came, so that wasn't in the Mass before that, and it stayed. But um, I, I don't know if I've used this example here, but I talk about it a lot. Our good friend, Father Connor Denstrom, who was oh, in yeah. season two, right? Uh, season one. One. He used to, he went to this uh, orphanage in El Salvador in the summers as a seminarian. And then he came back as a priest to celebrate mass. And all the kids there had mass, their Sunday mass was on Saturday because they couldn't get a priest. So they would all dress up and whatever and assemble and have Sunday mass on Saturday. And that's what they did. And all these kids thought that Sunday was the day after the Sabbath, basically, because they always had mass on Saturday. Which it is kind of (laughs) still. And so he went to... And suddenly he said, I'm going to have mass on Sunday, but the kids didn't want to come because they didn't think of Sunday as Sunday. They thought of Sunday as Saturday. And so that's an accretion, right? It's a funny necessity that becomes the norm. So imagine that became the rubrics and then someone copies that book and copies that book. And then suddenly people wake up and suddenly it's Tuesday and you're having Sunday. It's like 500 years of having mass on the wrong day, but it's the way we've always done it. Right. Well, we have to get back to the purity of the, early church fathers who knew that we had mass on Sunday because it was the Lord's day and the day of eternity. So that's an accretion that had a reason and then it becomes conventionalized. And I think a lot of people saw many of the liturgical things that way, that they were just added for better or for worse and to get back, scrape the barnacles all off the hull of the ship and get back to the ship itself. Yeah, this is a real tricky question though. And I think uh, the way that many people think about liturgical history now is different from how they were thinking about it in 1963. Uh, I think this is a great point uh, that you made that this this line about restoring the liturgy of the pristine condition of the fathers is actually from Pius V in 1570. So this is not a new, uh, you know, uh, principle. That, I've learned that, that the there's 60s, not a lot of new things are being said in church documents. Yeah, but I think what there there really I mean there was a great biblical and patristic revival uh, in the 20th century that kind of went hand in hand with this, but. Uh, you know, many people thought that we need to get back to that. There's, certainly, it's a privileged place, but we need to get back to it because what happened in the Middle Ages were uh, uh, were accretions in the very bad sense. And I think how we think about liturgical that, history now is, is that we have a better respect for, uh, while admitting that different ages had better and worse things and things that were more consistent with the ontology of the liturgy, there's a healthier vision of the different centuries through which the liturgies passed. That's why Pius XII recommended against antiquarianism, uncritical yeah. antiquarianism. He said, oh, well, let's go to the fifth century. Well, the Curie wasn't there yet, or or the Ayuste wasn't there yet. Well, what are we going to just go back to some age before something really good developed? So that's why in Mediator Day, Pius XII says, 
the Holy Spirit inspires the church in all of its ages, and we have to call very carefully. You know, what people complained about in the 60s is people were too ready to throw stuff out that actually might have been good to keep just by calling it an accretion. And so we're in this age now of trying to solve that problem. We use this, uh, there's this uh, uh, I just book. put my glasses on. Do I look smart now? <laughs> my reading glasses at the end of my nose. Even sounds smarter. There's a very good book on the, on the Eucharist by a very I, sound Orthodox uh, I read priest. a great article by Aidan Nichols. <laughs> and and uh, it's a 300-page book, and it devotes six pages to uh, the, the Eucharist according to St. Thomas Aquinas. Right? Wow. This priest was uh, of age, you know, in the 60s and 70s, and everything was patristic, 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 which is a good thing, but at the point where you're allowing six pages out of 300 on the Eucharist to St. Thomas Aquinas. Well, we just spent 10 minutes talking about the title of this chapter. No, yeah, we haven't okay. even talked Enough. about yeah. the content of the chapter yeah, Can yet. we get into the chapter? <laughs> <laughs> this is what happens when you know a lot, like Chris, you, you just keep setting up yeah, the context. Blah, blah. That's exactly what I hear when you talk. Yeah, yeah. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Like being at home. <laughs> well, the nature of the sacred liturgy, you know, the chapter five here starts with God wills that all men be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. First Timothy. But that's pretty much the nature of the sacred liturgy, right? God wills that all men be saved and come to know the truth, to come to know him. And so he sent Christ to do this and called him the mediator between God and man. Should that ring any bells for anyone? The mediator yes, should. between God and man, the mediator day. Mm-hmm. This is 1947. Uh, document of Pius XII, so it's just a few years earlier. Say this something is. smart, Chris. Oh, something smart? Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, notice how it starts. God who willed this sent his son, anointed by the Holy Spirit. So the the first uh, three persons involved in this uh, uh, liturgical ontology right are... the Trinity. Starting with the Trinity. Yeah, precisely. So who do you expect to hear from next? So you got God From the Father, God the about. Son, God the Holy Spirit. Who's going to be the next named Mary? entity? The next body named? Mary. Who? Mary. Uh, not unrelated, which is to say related, but no. Uh, the church. Oh. Yeah, so you've got what, oh, what yeah, these yeah, first yeah. Um, paragraphs kind of doing is, is launching what we would call the economy of salvation or salvation history, that the, hit, that the Trinity has a plan. It involves sending the Son to institute a church to bring all people back to knowledge of God and of the truth to be saved. But then, the great parlor trick of all time, Christ goes back to the Father and says, guess what? I taught you all this stuff. Sorry. See you. Your problem now. Yeah. Right? He ghosts, man. So what? how does he solve that problem? Well, he sends the Holy Spirit to continue and keep... He sends it. a pair of cleats. <laughs> <laughs> and traction on our way back to oh, there you go and begins the process of this continuing mission of Christ which is the church and then his various presences right so okay, so from the side of um, it was from the side of Christ as he slept the sleep of death upon the cross there came forth the wondrous sacrament of the whole church you say anything about that what paragraph number is that it's uh, right at the end of five. five. Oh, you, I was up at seven. Oh, well You're who was who was born out of the side of Adam Eve. Eve, right? So who's born out of the side of Christ? The church. The church, which is this kind of wife. Oh my gosh, I got two things right in a row. (laughs) Which is kind of this bridal notion that the church is the bride who's waiting to become one with her bridegroom again. And so Adam slept, God put him to sleep, but then as Christ slept on the cross, the whole church comes out, this this new bride. And uh, then he sends apostles filled with the Holy Spirit to go make disciples of all nations. So the church is this womanly figure who is walking her bridal walk down the great aisle of the big church of 
eternal, uh, well, of history, and we'll come together with her groom someday. All right, number six, right? Well, six, yeah, but I think we kind of glossed over that. So seven, look, seven. Oh, that last one was five and six? Yeah, we sort of hop around a little bit. All right, please let me know when that happens again. No, Christ is present in his church, especially in her liturgical celebrations. So that's number, that's the right, the first sentence of number seven. So Christ's presence, talk to me about presence. Christmas presents, Easter presents, oh, no, no, birthday no. presents. That's not the word, Dennis. You're using it wrong. No, I'm using it right. I'm just spelling it differently. Uh, if right. Christ is present at Christmas, he's Christmas present. Christmas presents. Yeah, no Christ, Got it. So. All right. So how is Christ present in the liturgy? What is, what's the point of presence anyway? Who cares? Christ in heaven at the right hand of the Father. Great. I'm here. Because it's not enough to just grant salvation for everybody, but he allows us to participate in that salvation through the praise and adoration of God and through the sacrifice. And so by Christ's participa- participation in the liturgy, he's allowing us, he's that, he's that bridge for us to take part in this, he- in this heavenly liturgy um, so that we can sanctify ourselves and be transformed and transfigured. That is all true, but what about presence? Ah, man. Well, we can't do that if he's not there. You can't be a co-operator if there's not a primary operator. You can't even be an operator if there's no cup. Yeah, you can't, sorry. <laughs> well, in the Old Testament, you know, the presence of God was really big deal, right? When God was with Israel, that's when they were in right relationship. They would defeat their enemies, the, the column of fire, the pillar of cloud, all that stuff. And then in the Holy of Holies of the temple, to go into God's presence was to be transformed. So presence is almost synonymous with efficacy or something of it being in God's presence changes you. Oh, Chris Isn't has a, a line Chris just, I, no, no. you felt a thought. You yeah, know I know. I we, we heard him squint. I heard <gasps> no, him squint his eyes. You use this line a, uh, a lot by... Um, Eve Congar. That's it. The presence yeah. of God is holiness, holy and confers holiness. So, so to be in the presence period. of holiness confers holiness upon right. you. So it's important that Jesus is present in a variety of ways in the liturgy. Right, primarily in the liturgy at all, right? So, in the, it talks about the sacrifice of the Mass. He's present there, right? He's offering himself, and that's efficacious for us. In the person of the minister, right, who's acting as Christ. And then it says, especially under the Eucharistic species. So, obviously, the real presence is the language we use for that. But also in the Word, it says. And lastly, when the church prays and sings. So, in the... Uh, in the community in a sense. And this is like the fullest presence that you could possibly be in. Because well, the Eucharistic do- presence is the right, fullest. Exactly. exactly. Um, but people used to argue, well, they would argue that before the council really talked about these multiple sort of species of presences or kinds of presence that people only thought Christ was present in the Eucharist, which he is, par excellence, but to recognize that the gospel proclamation isn't just a kind of classroom or it isn't just the priest job to sort of read it quietly to himself. But when the scriptures proclaimed, Christ's presence goes out to the people who hear it, right? In the action of the priest, in the people themselves, gathering as members of the, assembling as members of the mystical body. So there's this multiple notion or expanded notion of presence that's a real contribution of Vatican II. It's probably quite new. Yeah, it is. But it had, um, I, I'm thinking of a couple of uh, misreads of this paragraph, though. So we, right. we have- So two or three are gathered in its name. That's the same thing as the Eucharist. It is. So what's the, what's the uh, I mean, there are uh, local documents that say the primary uh, liturgical symbol is the gathered assembly. You mean environment and art and Catholic I worship by the I Bishop's Committee on the Liturgy from 1978? Okay. So if that's your interpretation wow, you of this paragraph, nerdy. what are you going to make your church look like? Us. 
Right, you're going to be nice and big and round so you can see each other because you're the primary liturgical symbol in right. which Christ is present. Well, Christ is present in everybody, certainly, but there, there's uh, not all presences in this regard are equal. But Christ is present in the, in the community, so to speak, because they've assembled as the mystical body. And so they're actually making present Christ their membership in the mystical body. So just to say we're all here is not quite the same as to say we've assembled as the mystical yeah, body. Here, there, here's another example. So what are you going to, how are you going to, how are you going to place your principal appointments in the sanctuary? Because Christ is present in the Eucharistic species ah, and Christ is present in the you word. Put your ambo over there and your the altar closer, the over closer there. to the altar, the more important it is. No well, altar will be no. central, right? There was yeah, a- you're going to, you're going to take the altar off of its central axis and you're going to, you're going to counterbalance oh, with ambo and you're altar. You're going to give them equal weight because according to Sacrosanctum Concilium number whatever this is, seven, Christ is present in the word, apparently just as present as he is in the altar. That's the first time I've ever heard Chris not know a citation from a liturgical document. Can you believe (laughs) that? Yeah, he had to actually look at this. He's not even having the document in front of him. This is all just... So there were a few trends, you know, I guess in the 70s, even into the 80s and 90s to put the altar off on the right and the ambo off on the left. And there'd be nothing in the middle except the priest chair because they were trying to equate the presence in the gospel with the presence in the Eucharist. That just makes it look like the priest is the most important. Well, yeah, and there's nothing in the middle, right? So anyway, this is not a proper interpretation. Uh, This is why the hermeneutical understanding is important. Say more about that. About what? Hermeneutical. Hermeneutical. Those things said by hermits. We all know what hermeneutical (laughs) is. By hermans, hermans. No, that's the uh, interpretive method, the lens for interpreting. Named after Hermes, who was a messenger of God. That's good, Jesse. Actually, that's right, isn't it, Chris? That's exactly yeah, right. Yeah, I remember. I listened really? to this podcast, too. Oh, like, dear. not only am I here for the conversations, <laughs> but I listened to it a couple times over to edit. Right. So the hermeneutical lens uh, reads these documents in light of the tradition, right? So not uh, as an ex nihilo, you know, expression uh, from the, the fathers in 1963. It's grown out of centuries of work. But this is all build up to the third paragraph of paragraph number seven. <laughs> seven, three. Because all of that is built up. Christ does this, Christ does that. Christ is present here. I have how many asterisks do I have next to that, Chris? I can even read that text. Yeah, you got four asterisks. Four asterisks. Rightly, rightly then, the liturgy is considered as an exercise of the priestly office of Jesus Christ. How many offices does he have? He has I mean, you got, a, you got an three. office. And- He's got oh. three, yeah. <laughs> Primary. So I got a home office and a lacrosse office. So do, you have a, do you have a tertiary office? Is this an uh, office for you? Jesus has a tertiary office. Oh, what are yeah. his offices? Uh, you know that. You listen to the podcast, Jesse. <laughs> you just said it in the last one. <laughs> so what are they? What are his three offices? Um, priest, prophet, and king. Yes. There you go. So this is the, the liturgy then is rightly an exercise of his priestly office. In which, I can't well, believe well, I got all, that right. What by does the that way? mean? To, to exercise. A priestly office. Uh, to do the thing in which the office is intended to do. Which is what? What does a priest do? A priest is a bridge. He's, he, he pontificates. Bridge. Yeah, he pontificates. He bridges. Yeah. He well, builds bridges. Right. He goes he into mediates. the, he goes between God and, and humanity, God and creation. But he offers sacrifice. 
and he offers the prayers and petitions of the people. So that's what the high priest did. He brought the sacrifices and all the prayers and petitions of Israel into the Holy of Holies, into the presence of God. Yes. Yeah, Father Martis would always make this line that being a priest is the most dangerous job in the world because you're the one who dares to stay, you know, imagine you got a you got two fighting dogs or mm-hmm. two fighting people or something like that, and you're going to step in there and you're going to get right in the middle of it. Well, the, what the priest's job is to step right in the middle between heaven and earth, and let God and man. Walk on you. And, well, yeah, right. exactly, and to to rejoin those two yeah. sides. And so to go into the Holy of Holies, <laughs> terrifying. We had a meeting on campus recently and there were a group of people who asked me to, to raise a question at the meeting and I'm the one who got my head chopped off, right? That's, that's dangerous stuff to mm-hmm. go there. That's so. why before you do that, you have to say orate fratres. Pray that my... pray. Yeah, I'm but, going to see the COO. But only stand up after... You say a rat right. Well, that's life. actually a great thing. You know, there, there's, a, there's a line about Moses with, uh, withstanding God in the breach, right? So God wants to destroy this people and start all over. And Moses is going to say, okay, I'm, what's a breach? You know, there's this gap here. He's going to step in. He's going to stand in the breach and withhold, withstand God. Bring these, reconcile, bring these Oh, that's together. like that scene from Star Wars, or is it Star Wars? Where Princess Leia is in the trash compactor with Luke Skywalker? What's Star Wars? What's Star Wars? <laughs> I, I know what Star Wars is. I haven't seen that one, though. My mom In the trash compactor? With, no, I was Princess it. Leia in her little outfit that everybody's... I'm, I'm sorry, I was too busy reading Romano Guardini's yeah, whatever. liturgy. Okay, so it's the exercise of the priestly office. So Christ goes to the Father with a sacrifice of himself and brings our prayers and petitions. And he says, in this, in this liturgy, the sanctification of man is signified by signs perceptible to the senses. It's almost redundant, signified by signs. But what does that mean? How do we know this is happening? We see it. We signify it. Right. And who signifies Christ to the right hand of the Father? The priest. Well, the priest. The priest primarily. Mm-hmm. But then the people, being members of that mystical body, get to do it as well. And that's why... It says a little bit more later, in the liturgy, the whole public worship is performed by the mystical body of Jesus Christ, that is, his head and his members. So Christ didn't just offer his head to the Father, right? He offered his heart, his body, his blood, his bones. Everything. All the parts of him were sacrificed. And so if we're part of that mystical body, then we are sacrificed too, which therefore means we should pay, pray, and obey and be quiet a mass. No, we should actively participate. Right, because we want the efficacy of those signs to be made real in and through us as well, the lay and, people. And so does Jesus. He doesn't need your help, Dennis, uh, to save you, but he yeah, I guess he, so. he wants it. And he's not going to save you unless you cooperate in this offering of the sacrifice. I remember, I think I mentioned this in a podcast years ago, but... <laughs> years ago. <laughs> the fact that we could even say that I is remarkable. One. Uh, Scott Hahn talked about uh, participation in God's plan once, but he said he saw a father riding a, driving a, lo- a rider mower on a big lawn, and he had this little like, three-year-old son in his lap, and the three-year-old son thought he was driving the lawnmower, and he was mowing the lawn. He was actually mowing the lawn because he was on the mower and he was steering, but actually the father was steering the mower. But, so he had a real participation in that, even though he was being guided in a larger plan by his father. And so we have this participation in the larger plan. We actually do it, even though... Jesus is driving the mower. We're, we're driving the mower, too. We have a remote uh, car door opener on our minivan, and I always tell Agnes, like, hey, it opens up, and she goes, one, two, three, and points, and then it magically opens, and she thinks she's opening and closing the door, but I'm do- I'm the father. I'm doing it. You're the wizard. Mm-hmm. Pay no attention to that man behind the mm-hmm. steering wheel. All right, so this is why. I know. We, we've only gotten through th- two paragraphs here. We have to do a little more. Okay. <laughs> 
One more sentence. One more sentence. How can we give up just on one more? Can we can we read sacrifice? Just one more sentence, please. <laughs> okay, so if it's a most important action of Christ, the high priest, priestly office, it follows that every liturgical celebration, because it's an action of Christ the priest and of his body, which is the church, is a sacred action surpassing all others. No other action of the church can equal if its efficacy. Is that number eight? Title. No, no, it's still number seven. Wow. The same degree. So this didn't thing you is, bring your copy of this? this? Thing is, no, you didn't bring one for so me. So what are they saying? What are they saying? The liturgy, source, and summit. So it's the source of all these graces, but it's the summit of our prayer. Rosary is good, but it can't compete with the Mass. If you're saying some other prayer at the Mass because you don't think you're worthy to offer yourself as a victim, that's not good enough. That the liturgy is the number one thing because it's the action of Christ at the Father. Well, and even uh, with regard to those things that are not prayer necessarily, those other uh, munera or offices, teaching, learning, uh, evangelizing, serving, and all of the rest. They're good. They are good. They're, and they're essential to the Christian character because they were integral to Jesus. But the high point, uh, almost literally, of Jesus' work was from the cross. So... Uh, Therefore, the high point of what the church does and what Christians do, cells of the church, is to offer themselves and sacrifice on the cross. So, how about that? Our first episode on Sacrosanctum Gachillion, we got through four paragraphs, and our second one, we got through three. Next time, we will get through two. Two, and then one, and then... (laughs) (laughs) And then one podcast per sentence after that. Then it will be the eschaton. All right, uh, should we answer some liturgy questions? Yes. Or just one, I guess? So you guys know that we love the Liturgical Institute and we love everything that we do here, but you know who else loves the Liturgical Institute? Yeah, Bishop Robert Barron. And guess what he has to say about it? Well, I've known the Liturgical Institute from the very beginning. I was at Mundelein on the faculty in 2000 when it started. I knew Monsignor Mannion very well, who was the founder. Uh, Dr. McNamara, who was with him from the beginning, I've known. We've become good friends. I've spoken many times there. I've known all the faculty members. I've known many of the students. So I, I know from the ground up what the, um, the LI does. And they introduce people into the beauty of the church's intellectual tradition and liturgical tradition. And um, I don't know in the country a better place to go to get immersed precisely in that aesthetic dimension and the intellectual than the LI. So, you know, I'm a big fan. Moses, Moses, why do you question me? Why do you care? Today, we have a similar debate over this. Anyone know what this is, class? Anyone? This question this week comes from D. McNamara. I mean, uh, while Dennis M. will say, yeah. just for an anonymity. For anonymity's sake, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so D. McNamara says... I will says, ask it. Oh, yeah, you can ask Because I'm here. It. All right. So, I was in a historic church in California. One of those old mission dealies and it, even though it was february and it was sunny it was kind of cold and i had a hoodie sweatshirt kind of nice one and i was sitting there doing a holy hour it wasn't during mass or anything i was just sitting there by myself with a little reading and i had the hood up because i liked feeling like a monk you know with the hood and it was, it was cold and the usher came by san diego and asked me <laughs> to take my hood off because i my head was covered in church and they don't let men cover their heads in church was this like a hood ornament it, no, it was just a hood. There was no ornament on the hood, in fact. So I'm still annoyed, Chris. Do I have the right to be annoyed? Tell me. 
And here's what I know. About that. <laughs> and another thing. And another thing. <laughs> and B, when you like, if you go to a monastery of Benedictines or something, sometimes or Dominicans even, um, they'll have hoods in their habits. And when they're sitting there, holy hour, they put the hood up because it's supposed to prevent them from having peripheral vision and helps them concentrate. It also keeps them warm. Now, during mass, maybe something else. I know in the traditional liturgy, um, some monks will actually wear the hood up during liturgy and then when the name of Jesus is said they have to take it down sort of like when you have to bow your head at the name of Jesus and some of the Dominicans I know said at meals even they had their hoods up for silence and they would have to take their hoods off when the name is of Jesus is that like when you put your folders up on reading. your desk so no one looks at your paper and cheats off you well it's kind of like that yeah so a little internal privacy anything, anything else I'm annoyed that he interrupted my prayer and another thing so am I right or wrong tell to me to be annoyed well, yeah, I, should, I, don't know. I should have I think Christian first, charity either way, I realize. Yeah. I think first, uh, there's no answer to this that I'm aware of. At least uh, take that usher on the books. But I mean, what, um, what principles from history, tradition, practice, theology, culture do you use then to try to decide what the right thing to do right. is? So there's some, I mean, you give this, uh, there's precedent for wearing your hood, or at least for some members of the church to wear a hood in uh, church, but... Uh, uh, yeah, but like taking so, your hat off normally was a sign of respect for your yeah. to your superior. Is a hood a hat? Well, a head covering, I guess, would yeah. be the way. I don't know. I know can you that. Wear, uh, can you wear a hat? No, you so wouldn't what, do that. What about like a beanie? Because I I see monastic wear like beanies too. Well, you know, the bishop wears a, a skull cap. Yeah, and but he always takes it off for the Eucharistic prayer. He always takes his miter off when he's talking to God. So we but never. This is, but this is adoration, right? This was just a private holy yeah. hour in a chapel. No liturgy going on of any kind. Yeah. I know that uh, Marguerite doesn't let the boys wear hoods in the house. Like mm. you got the hoodie sweatshirt, and you, he always makes them take it off. So I don't know if Marguerite Karsten's is a, you know, a liturgical principle. I obey her in all yeah. things. Yeah, uh, she probably wouldn't let you wear it in the church then, even during a holy hour by myself in the yeah, chapel. Yeah, I think so. Really? Yeah. Okay. But I think you know. Um, all right, then I'll never do it again. <laughs> Marguerite Karsten's <laughs> wife of Chris. Uh, but no, I, I I think you make a distinction. I mean, you would would you have worn it in mass? No. No, but if you're all by yourself, all alone. In an empty church. You know, oh, how about this? You know, uh, we're all Bishop Barron fans here, right? And he talks about, uh, mm. listen, yeah, okay. Oh, no, I am, I am. <laughs> he talks about uh, his morning ritual is to make a cup of coffee and go in and make a holy hour while he drinks his coffee and, you know, uh, says his pra- his briefery and says his prayers and does some reading. And He know, might not do that out in public, but in private, yeah. a lot of things are allowed. You know, so you probably wouldn't bring a cup of coffee into I would either, not have. I mean, yeah, so I, I think, uh, you know, at this point you're doing private devotional prayer and private devotional prayer, even though it's in a public place, uh, has a private character about it. So if I had a Benedictine I, habit on, he probably, probably would have let me keep yeah, my hood. Yeah. Maybe, well, that's, maybe that's the answer. Just don't make a habit of it then. <laughs> All right. Dennis, I hope Dennis, this, <laughs> I hope this answers so your question. Take that, Usher in San Diego. Dennis, if you have a question you, for the liturgy guys. <laughs> I do. You can I tweet will, yourself. I should have emailed that to questions.liturgyguys.com. All right. You can email us at questions.liturgyguys.com or at liturgyguys on Twitter or at dmackadee on Twitter. But don't seriously, don't do that. And Chris, I don't think you even have a smartphone. So, all right. Well, thank you and God bless. The Liturgy Guys is produced by the Liturgical Institute. If you like what you've heard today, like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. And be sure to check out liturgicalinstitute.org to discover more about our degree programs, public events, and publications. 
Refresh your soul and renew the church at what Bishop Robert Barron calls one of the very best places in the country to receive formation in the Catholic liturgical tradition. Now that's a podcast.